two things I would say right off uh, before we get started here that I'm thankful for. Uh, the first Sunday in January, I'm thankful for good congregational singing like we just experienced, or at least as I heard it, seated, seated on the front row. I always feel torn. I feel like telling you that you ought to come up to the front so that you can hear what's going on behind, but then if everyone sat on the front, there'd be no one sitting behind the people sitting on the front, and then that would defeat the whole purpose. So I'm just going to say that I'm very content and thankful that I get to sit on the front row and hear all of you singing behind me. There's something about um, not simply good songs, but good singing together that warms a cold heart and that sort of jump-starts a dull or lethargic heart. And so I'm very thankful for that and thankful for the ministry that this congregation continues to be to me personally and I know to the other elders and deacons, uh, the leaders that we have here because of the, uh, the way in which you uh, participate in worship. The second thing that I'll say that I'm very thankful for at the beginning of this year is that I'm thankful for good teachers and good books. All right, I say that because we're starting off anywhere from a 10 to 12 week series in Leviticus, right? And as I say that, JT already alluded to it earlier, so you had your chance when you heard the word Leviticus to bolt out of the doors. It is now too late. We've instructed our greeters to lock the doors. You will not be able to get out until the service is over. All kidding aside, though, um, I'm, I am very thankful for good teachers and good books, both living, uh, living teachers and dead teachers, um, who uh, help the church through the years think through the scriptures and to think through what it is that God is revealing of himself through his word. If you have spent any time in Leviticus or read any, um, any bits of it, you know that Leviticus is not always the easiest book to read. It's probably not where you instinctively go if you're going to try to find a quick pick-me-up in the spiritual life. Um, your eyes probably just at the, the naming of the book, your eyes might start to glaze over or something like that. Um, and that's okay. I'm hoping, though, that by the time that we get to the end of this uh, series in Leviticus that you'll have uh, a newfound appreciation for the book. One of the reasons that we're doing Leviticus, there's, there's no super spiritual reason, I'll just say it this way, uh, I think one of, if not the very first um, lengthy series that we did um, when I began preaching regularly was in the book of Genesis. And then after we were done with Genesis, we hopped over to the New Testament. I can't remember what we did in the New Testament after that. And then when we were done with the New Testament book, we had to hop back over to the Old Testament. So I thought, well, you know, why don't we just continue and do Exodus? And now, you know, once you do Genesis and Exodus, you might as well do Leviticus. And then the next time we'll do Numbers and Deuteronomy. And if you stick around long enough, maybe we'll get through the Old Testament, all right? But so we're here in Leviticus for no other reason than it's, uh, it is the word of the Lord, and it's good for us to see what the Lord reveals in his word. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Leviticus. This is going to be much more of an, uh, of an introduction to Leviticus, uh, a, sort of a flyover to get you ready for some of the things that we'll, um, we'll address in more detail as in the weeks to come. But before we do that, let me just ask for God's help as we begin. Father, not only are we separated by time and space from, um, 
from the message of Leviticus, but if we are honest, we have to say that we oftentimes feel distant or separated because of our lack of appreciation for what you have done for us in the work of Jesus Christ. Help us to see with new eyes your glory revealed in this Old Testament book. Help us to see how this book points us to Christ and how Christ is the fulfillment of all things that were written and promised in former times. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I'd like to do. I, uh, it, it's going to be rather simple. Um, I want to uh, talk about Leviticus in terms of just the overall theme. We'll do that in, in fairly short order. I want to give three preliminary statements about things that we need to keep in mind as we're going through the book of Leviticus. And then um, once we get those three preliminary statements um, established, I want to say, okay, now here's the book of Leviticus and the way that it seems to break down by divisions and by chapters and to see how there is something of a progression that we're taking through as we read through the book. So, just in general, Leviticus really does not have very much to do with the priests, with the Levites, although that's what you might think when you hear that word, if you're familiar with the term Levites or the priests. It's not really the the primary concern. The primary concern with Leviticus is personal and corporate holiness. It's God calling his people to be holy. The danger that we face when we're reading through Leviticus, is that because Leviticus is part of the Mosaic law, part of the law covenant, and because so much of Leviticus is given by way of commands, right, this is what you will do. If this happens, then you must do this, right? It's very easy because of our natural fleshly wiring to begin to think or to lose to begin to think that holiness as God calls his people to be is something that we create or we generate or we maintain right it's all on us and there're either going to be one of two things that will happen with that if you adopt that way of thinking even if it just sort of subtly creeps in and lays hold of your imagination your spiritual imagination If you think that your holiness ultimately is something that you create, something that you manufacture and hold on to, one of two things will happen. Either you will think that you really have produced your holiness, in which case you more than likely will become very prideful or even arrogant. You might be able to mask it in a pretty good way, but deep down, because you're going to be self-satisfied in what you think is your holiness, That breeds arrogance and pride, especially when you look at your brothers and sisters whom you think are not nearly as holy as what you are, okay? The other danger that you could run into sort of goes the the other way, but it comes from the same root. If you think that holiness is something that you create and manufacture and maintain, then when you find that you don't measure up to the holiness that God calls you to, you're going to be dispirited, you're going to be disappointed, and you're going to be riddled with doubt about where you are in your standing with the Lord and whether or not God even loves you and accepts you. So let me take you just to a couple verses in Leviticus itself that should guard us against the idea that when God calls His people to holiness 
that this is something that we do on our own, that holiness is a, is a man-made or self-made project. Start with me in Leviticus 11.45. Before we read Leviticus 11.45, let me give you the three preliminary statements that we want to make here just to sort of set a balance. Number one, we want to see from Leviticus itself, as we will in just a moment, that holiness is the effect of our salvation, not the cause. Holiness is the effect of our salvation, not the cause. Number two, that holiness is God's gift to his people, to us, cultivated through our obedience. And then number three, that holiness is a distinguishing mark for all of God's people. So number one, holiness is the effect of our salvation, not its cause. Look in Leviticus 11 and start with me at verse 44. We're gonna, but 45 is the one we, we want to key in on. Leviticus 11.44, the Lord says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. And then here it is. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, or therefore, or so, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The order there in verse 45 is very important. I am the Lord your God, not who will bring you up out of Egypt, the land of slavery and oppression and bondage, not the Lord who is bringing you up in the process of doing so. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Do you hear that? In other words, before God calls his people to be holy, he redeems them, he saves them. God's people do not pursue holiness in order to be saved. They pursue holiness because they have been saved. That changes the dynamic of the way that you will think about holiness. It changes the way that you will think about obedience to God's commands. When you begin to see and understand more clearly, when the Lord, by His grace, continues to work on your heart and mind, and He reminds us over and over again that anything that you do comes from, flows out of what I have first done for you, It becomes much more difficult for me to begin to think that I'm trying to earn favor with God. God already favors me. It becomes very hard for me to think that God will love me more if God already loves me. And it's knowing the favor and the love of God through the salvation that I have and that you have in Jesus Christ 
that we're motivated and encouraged to pursue holiness. Listen, and this is not unique to Leviticus, right? I mean, it, no surprise, what you see in the Old Testament, you ought to see be, uh, borne out in the New Testament as well. Think in Ephesians 1, you don't need to turn there. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says that he, talking about God the Father, chose us in him, that is, chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. He chose us in order for us to be holy. Paul does not say he chose us in him because we were holy and blameless. There would be no people of God if it depended on our holiness and our blamelessness. So holiness is the effect of our salvation, not the cause of it. Number two, holiness is God's gift cultivated through our obedience. Turn with me a few pages over, or maybe several pages over, Leviticus chapter 20. Verses 7 and 8. Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Sounds very similar to the verses that we just read. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. What does it mean to consecrate yourself and to be holy? Well, verse 8 seems to indicate it means obeying God's commands. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Do you see what's happening here? You consecrate yourself. You strive for holiness. You be holy. But the underpinning, the foundation for your pursuit of holiness is that it's God who ultimately makes you holy. Now, here's the thing. God does not make us holy, not in a practical living way, by zapping us with holiness while we're sitting on the couch or while we're seated in the pew. Right? Would that he did. Life might be much easier and much smoother. But here we see that the means by which God creates holiness and cultivates holiness in his people, the means by which he does that is our obedience. So, must you obey God's call to be holy in order to be holy? Yes. Is your holiness ultimately dependent upon your obedience? No. Figure it out. But once again, this is, this is not something that is unique to the Old Testament, foreign to the New Testament. Listen, for example, to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses a little bit different language, but the same idea is here. Paul says... But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me did not prove futile or in vain. And then listen, he says, but I labored even more than all of them. Talking about the other apostles. I worked harder than all of them. I outworked them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul worked hard to make himself a fitting instrument in God's hands. And yet, the more he worked, the harder he worked, the more that he pursued God through Christ by the power of His Spirit, the more Paul realized, well, actually, all of this laboring and all of this working is made possible by God's own power working through me. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Paul will say in Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You work, I work, because God is working. And that brings us to number three. Holiness is God's gift cultivated through our obedience, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that, number three, holiness is a distinguishing mark of God's people. And we might want to say, just for the sake of clarity, is a distinguishing mark for all God's people. One of the things that you'll notice as you go through and as you read in Leviticus is that there are a handful of places where there are special instructions that are given to the priests, to the people who are going to minister in the area of the tabernacle or even go inside the tent that, where God dwells among His people. But by and large, the overwhelming majority material in the book of Leviticus is addressed to the nation as a whole. Look, for example, go, go back to the very beginning of Leviticus, chapter 1. Then the Lord God, this is 1-1, then the Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them. Leviticus is not instruction for Moses or Aaron or for Aaron's sons, the priest. Leviticus is instruction for all of God's people. God calls his people individually and collectively to be holy. In fact, holiness is such an essential mark or such an essential distinctive of God's people that what you find as you go through Leviticus is that someone who is not walking in holiness ultimately runs the risk of being cut off from God's people. There is no other way, in other words, to be part of God's people without holiness. 
What does Paul say in Romans 12? I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2, Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, we ought always to give, to give thanks to God for you, knowing that He chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. If you are one of God's people, if you belong to the Lord, you have been chosen for salvation through the process of sanctification. If you do not see, now understand, I'm not talking about perfect examples of sanctification, but if you are not able to find or see or discern any evidence of a growing holiness in your life, in your mind, in your thought processes, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act, in the way that you interact with other people, if there is no mark or sign of any holiness that really is spirit-driven through union with Christ, you ought to ask yourself some very hard and difficult questions. Start with, am I even one of His? Now, one other thing, let me say this before we look at the, the overview of Leviticus in terms of the chapter divisions. The other thing that we need to say right up front, acknowledging the fact that holiness is the effect of our salvation, that holiness is God's gift cultivated through our obedience, that holiness is a distinguishing mark for all of God's people, why would we want holiness? The answer in Leviticus is God's people ought to want to be holy because they want God. Holiness is not mere compulsion. It's not a simple matter of obligation. Holiness is what God's people pursue, what they desire, because they know that God is holy, and in holiness they will come to see and know more of God. Holiness is for the experience and the enjoyment of God. If you're a Christian here today and you are, and, and your spiritual life is minimal to almost non-existence in terms of any sort of love or joy or peace or contentment or fulfillment in your relationship with Christ, may I suggest to you, I'm not saying that this is the reason why, I think there could be multiple reasons why, but could I at least suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons that you don't enjoy Christ is because you don't enjoy holiness in Christ. It's hard to take pleasure in sin. 
in unrighteousness and then turn on a dime and find yourself enjoying fellowship with God in union with Christ. Holiness is for the experience and the enjoyment of God's presence with you and with us as a people. So having said that, here's the way that Leviticus breaks down. Let me make this special appeal to you, just thinking about the way that we're going to do this right now. We're not going to spend a lot of time dropping in on particular verses. This is much more of a sort of a, a flyover at 30,000 feet. But this is, a, this is a good example. Because we're not going to, to, uh, to get into the weeds as much in Leviticus, maybe as we have in some other books, let me strongly encourage you to bring, an, uh, bring a Bible in print. Like, right? Bring it, now, listen, if you come and you have your Bible on your phone, that's fine. I mean, I'll sort of give you the stink eye or something like that when I see you you know, doing that. That's fine. We won't kick you out. You can stay, right? But just, just by, by word of encouragement, one of the things I think that you'll find, especially when you're, when you're doing more of an overview type thing, because of the fact that you need to be able to turn and make your way through sections of Scripture, it tends to be much easier to do that with a Bible in hand than with a Bible on your phone, Right? You'll also find it much easier when we're talking about, say, purity laws. If we're using one example about how the Lord calls His people to purity, and we're talking about motherhood, if you have, your, if you have a printed Bible in front of you and it's open laying on your lap or you're holding it in your hand, you also get to see what else is around the laws about purity for motherhood that we may not even address, that you may then go back to later to dig in a little bit further. You, get, you see more, in other words, when you have a Bible in hand. All right? this, this is not a Luddite rant. I'm, I'm not saying that cell phones are evil or anything like that. Right? I've got the Bible on my phone and all that kind of good stuff. It's just much better and easier when it comes to reading God's Word and studying if you have it in hand. Okay, appeal over. Start with me, before we get into Leviticus itself, start with me at the end of Exodus, which is really where you need to begin to appreciate what's going on in Leviticus. From Exodus 25 on, the major focus of Exodus is the instructions that God has given to Israel to build a tabernacle, that is a dwelling place, so that he can dwell among his people. The ultimate gift that God gives to the people that he redeems is the gift of himself. Right? Remember Moses in the fiasco with the golden calf when, when the Lord says, I'm going to give you the promises, I'll send you into the land, but I'm not going to go with you? And Moses says, no, that's no, that's no deal. If you're not with us, what makes us any different from all the other peoples of the earth? Right? If we don't have you, we have nothing. Right? So the ultimate gift that God gives to his people is his presence, which is why he instructs the people to build the tabernacle. In that passage then, at, or I'm sorry, at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle, the dwelling place for God to live with his people has been constructed. And here's how Exodus ends. Exodus chapter 40 Verses 34 and 35. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, do you, you hear that in verse 35? The tabernacle is working as a tent of meeting where people would go, not just where God would dwell, but where His people could go and meet with God. In verse 35, though, we've got an issue. The tent of meeting is not able to be accessed. Doesn't that sort of defeat the whole purpose of having a tent of meeting if you're not able to go in and meet? Why can Moses not go in and meet with the Lord at the tent of meeting? He can't approach the presence of the Lord. Not even Moses can approach the presence of the Lord with that kind of freedom. How will God's people ever begin to have fellowship with Him? How will they ever be able to draw near? The first seven chapters in Leviticus goes to answer that question. If you want to draw near, if you want to approach me, it must be done by way of sacrifice. You cannot come empty-handed. You cannot enter in polluted, sinful, defiled. Something has to atone for your sin in light of my holiness. And so Leviticus opens up. Notice in Leviticus 1.1, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Moses can't go into the tent of meeting. What does the Lord do? Does the Lord sit idly by, passively by, and say, well, they're going to have to figure it out? No. Notice Leviticus 1.1, then the Lord called. Then when? Then after he had filled the tabernacle. Then after Moses was not able to enter. Then after that, the Lord called Moses and said, Moses, let me tell you how you can come near. Do you hear the grace of God in that? Moses, you can't draw near. Aaron, you can't come. You can't approach me. You can't look on me. You can't enter into my presence and survive unless I make a way for you to come. And because I want my people to draw near to me, because I want them to come to me, because that's the reason that I saved them, to give myself to them. For that reason, the Lord called to Moses and said, here is how you approach. And all of life in this first covenant that God has with His people rests on sacrifice. Everything comes by way of sacrifice. If you are going to approach the Lord in order to be forgiven for your sin. Do you know what you must bring? A sacrifice. 
a blood sacrifice. If you are going to approach the Lord in order to be purified, not necessarily from some sin, but from some contamination that makes you unfit to approach God, do you know what it takes in order to be purified from your pollution? A sacrifice. If you are going to make a special vow to the Lord, a promise to do something for Him, do you know what you need in order to do that? A sacrifice. If you are going to dedicate yourself to the Lord for some sort of special service, a Nazarite or some such thing, do you know what you have to bring to the Lord? A sacrifice. In anything and everything that you do with or to or for the Lord, you must have a sacrifice to atone for you or you do not get to God. But it's even bigger than that because once you find out that you need a sacrifice just to be able to get into the presence of God, just to be able to draw near and approach, then you begin to find out that even for me to continue to congregate or to gather with God's people, right, my other brothers and sisters who themselves are called to be holy just like I've been called to be holy and we're called to be holy together. All of my interaction and dealing with my brothers and sisters now are dependent on sacrifice. So if, I have, if I've created an offense with my brother or sister and I need to be reconciled to them, do you know how I'm going to be reconciled? Through a sacrifice at the altar. If I have robbed or harmed financially my neighbor in some way and I need to make restitution to them, do you know how restitution is made in part? by a sacrifice. If we're going to enter into some sort of contractual agreement together, sacrifice, everything from top to bottom, all of life for God's people is rooted, is built on sacrifice. If you don't have a sacrifice to get yourself to God and to keep you in fellowship with your brothers and sisters, you do not have life with God. How often do you have to bring these sacrifices? Do you, later in Leviticus, you, you, you begin to see and you begin to find out. The day starts with a sacrifice on the altar. Before anyone starts to approach or come to bring their personal individual offerings, the day starts with a sacrifice. The day ends with a sacrifice. The very first thing that happens in the morning and the very last thing that happens in the evening is the death of an animal to atone for the sins of God's people. And this is your life day after day after day, year after year after year. You have to have a sacrifice or you don't come. Is anyone thankful for Jesus? It is no different in the New Covenant. The only way that sinful people, redeemed though they may be, chosen though they may be, the only way that sinful people can enter into the presence of God, the only way that they can be reconciled to Him, the only way that they can be kept in fellowship with Him is on the base of a sacrifice. And if you have Christ, you have all that you need.
But if you don't have Christ, who is the one perfect final sacrifice, you do not have access to God. It makes no difference what your mother thinks of you, what your employer or your coworkers or your classmates or your siblings or your spouse thinks of you. If you don't have Christ, you don't have access to God. The first seven chapters of Leviticus is laying that groundwork to say all of life in the presence of God is built on the idea of an atoning sacrifice. Then you get to chapters 8 through 10, and 8 through 10 is addressing the ordination, the installation of the priesthood. So now here's what happens. You've just understood or come to see that all of life, in the highs, in the lows, and everything in between, is rooted and based in sacrifice. And now what you're going to find out in chapters 8 through 10 is that even when I bring my sacrifice to the altar, I'm not the one who is qualified to be able to actually give it to God so that it can atone for me. Someone else has to do that in my place. The priest does. Because he's been uniquely qualified uniquely installed, uniquely appointed to do that very thing. Even when I approach the place where God dwells and I come to the courtyard, the courtyard is as far as I can go because I have not been given permission to enter into the tent where God dwells. Only the priest can do that. So not only is my life, my fellowship with God dependent upon sacrifice, it's also dependent on a priest. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By this will, Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified, that is, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's the sacrifice, there's the offering. Look, verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Do you hear that? Do you see what Hebrews is doing in those verses? Hebrews 10 is telling you, in Christ, not only do you have the right acceptable sacrifice, but you have the right man who brings the sacrifice to God. It's Christ. Christ is both your offering and your offerer. Even if you had the right sacrifice, you wouldn't be able to offer it up in the right way to be accepted. And God has taken care of all of that for his people. He has given us the sacrifice we need, and he's given it to us in the body of his son, so that when his son brings his body into the Holy of Holies, 
It is both what we need and offered in exactly the way that we need it. If you have Christ, you have it all. After chapters 8 through 10, you move into what for many of us is one of the more confusing sections of Leviticus. It's the laws about purity or clean or unclean distinctions. Because we'll spend more time on it when we get there, let me try to keep these last two sections brief. In chapters 11 through 16, once it, once sacrifices have been established as the key to ongoing fellowship with God and with one another, once we have priests established who are able to take those sacrifices and offer them to God so that we can be atoned for, now we get to what it looks like to live in fellowship with God. And one of the things that it means is that you have to remain pure, clean, Leviticus 11 through 16 deals with the idea that God's people, even when they are desiring to walk with God, will inevitably be defiled. They will be polluted. We will be defiled and polluted just simply because we are finite creatures living in a broken and fallen world. The purity laws, the cleanliness laws, go to say something like, because God is whole and perfect, because there are no impurities with God, you must be whole and perfect and without impurity to draw near to God. But because I know that you will not be able to maintain wholeness and perfection and purity, here are my provisions in order to clean you when you get dirty. Can, just, just a quick glance. Look at chapter 12, just to give you an idea as to how extensive this is. If some of you have a subject heading over chapter 12, what is your subject heading? Purification for childbirth. If a woman gives birth, there is a period of time where she is deemed unclean. She can't enter into or draw near to the presence of the Lord. Why is that? Is it because childbirth is sinful? No. Is it because God hates kids? Certainly not. But it's because both with motherhood or with leprosy, with a skin disease, with a rash, with a cut, with an open wound, what happens in that period or process is you are no longer whole and put together. Not necessarily because of any sinful offense that you have created, but just simply because you are finite and you are a creature. And your imperfection itself means that on its own, you are unworthy to enter into the presence of the Lord. Let me, let me translate this in more realistic terms. Do you know that that means what Leviticus is teaching here about purity and about cleanliness? That means that even if 
you were able to go through an entire day without sinning a single time, even if you still would not be holy enough to approach God on your own. Because while I move around in this world, I am exposed to and contaminated with all other kinds of sin. Even if I don't do the sin, I think about sin. Even if I don't say the word, the word is there in my heart. That's why Jesus says in the Gospels, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man, what's in his heart. Even if you did not break a law, you are still not clean enough to get into the presence of God. And then you go to the last section of Leviticus in chapters 17 through 27, and the point in that section is to say this. Fellowship with God is not merely about ceremonial purity, right? It's not about dressing up on Sunday, looking your best for an hour or two once a week, and then going out and being done with it. Real holiness means not only are you pure in your approach to God, but that you are, for all of life in every way, possessed and owned by God. Your life belongs to Him. In 17 through 27, here, this is not exhaustive. These are some of the things that are addressed as the Lord is making it clear what a holy life looks like in fellowship with Him. He gives commands about offerings. He gives commands about... We have kids in the room. Intimacy. He gives commands about parents. He gives commands about Sabbath rest, idolatry, farming, harvest, property rights, the way that you speak, the way that you exercise justice in the courts, animal husbandry, cutting your hair, piercings, tattoos, equal measures and standards in the way that you weigh out things or measure things, community standards, how you're going to interact with your neighbors, the diet that you have, family members, foreigners, false religions, celebrations, worships, debts, vows, all of that, every aspect of your life, God says, belongs to me. It is no different today there's not one area of your life or of mine that God does not look at that, point at it, and say, that belongs to me. And the joy of our life is being able to offer those things up to the Lord, to be able to live our lives in conformity with His revealed will, so that we find that our lives are given the ability and the capacity to enjoy more of God. It's God that we want. And if holiness is the path and the means by which we get more of God, let's walk the path of holiness. Holiness.